I can't imagine what it would have been like to know that my only hope for saving my 12-year-old daughter's life was to convince a man that I'd heard had the power to heal the sick to come to my house and do something miraculous that would heal her. But this is exactly what happens in today's passage. A highly respected man, no less, only has one hope for saving his daughter, and that's that Jesus will do something. And this desperate story has two sides. It has a very public side, and it has a very private side. On the public side, a good deal of it happens while a crowd of people are watching. Yes, this large crowd knows just how sick this little girl is, but only a few people will see what happens privately when Jesus comes and he takes control. And one of the few people on the inside of all that happened that day was the Apostle Peter, the man who is almost universally believed to be the source for everything that Mark tells us in his book about the life of Jesus. And what Peter tells us about what happened in private that day gives us another powerful answer to the overall question in the book of Mark. The reason that the book of Mark was written was to answer the question, who is this man? But this time, even though the reality of what happens in private is hidden from almost everyone, and for good reason, what we learn about Jesus from Peter is that Jesus is not only a man who has the power and authority over life and death, but he is also someone who knows each of us, even little 12-year-old girls, intimately. This story tells us we are all known, known by this powerful and authoritative man named Jesus. Before we start, would you just pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, uh, I just pray right now that uh, the words that you have given me are words that uh, each person needs to hear in some way today. We acknowledge that you know us and you love us and you have something to say to each one of us this morning. And so I just pray that uh, you would get me out of the way uh, so that your spirit can move and speak in unique ways to each person in this room and those that are joining us online. Lift this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to be known? To be truly known by someone. One of the definitions of, of knowing, to know, is to have developed a relationship with someone through meeting, meeting and spending time with them. To be familiar or friendly with them. So to know someone, you have to have a relationship with them. You need to have spent time with them. They're familiar to you and you are familiar to them. I have certain people in my life that know me or know certain aspects of me. I have a, a group of theater friends that they kind of know that, that artistic theater side of me. And we can talk about our favorite Stephen Sondheim musical or um, how we felt about the movie version of Cats. Um, let me tell you, we all disliked it immensely. So in case you were wondering, that's pretty much a given. Um, I have friends uh, that I've met through my children. 
So they know the mom side of me. And we, depending on what child we have in common, we talk about those kids and what activities they're involved in, what they're doing. I have my friends at the YMCA that know the exercise part of me. That's a very small part of me, but it's still there. Um, my kids really laughed at that one. Anyway. We talk about, uh, you know, our favorite class and which one we're going to go to this week and who our favorite instructors there, there are. So th there are people that know certain aspects of me and know me in certain ways and talk with me about certain things. I mean, let's just be honest. The gals that I meet weekly at the Y do not care about Stephen Sondheim or my opinions about him, and I don't expect them to. So they know me in a certain way. But to be known is different than just knowing. Being known through and through means that someone sees you, all of you, the beautiful parts and the ugly parts, the wonderful parts and the horrible parts. They see you and understand you. When you're known, it's like that person has studied you and taken you in. They know what you need before you do. They know the words to say in any given situation. It's like they're 10 steps ahead of you. And I believe one of the people that's the best example in my life of someone that really knew me was my mom. Some might say, of course, your mom knows you. She was your mom. But my mom really, really knew me. Maybe it was because I was the youngest and kind of like an only child. My next sibling is 10 years ahead of me. So she was, had a lot more time for me, a lot more time to focus on me. But she knew me. And let me tell you, that was sometimes really annoying, especially in high school. Because let's be honest, in high school, we don't want anyone to really know us, particularly our mom, okay? She caught me at every turn with everything that I was doing. And I really don't like people telling me where I'm deficient or lacking or where my life could use some work. But she saw all those places in me. And she told me all the things I needed to work on or where I needed to focus my attention. She wasn't hard on me because she was probably the one in my life that encouraged and supported me more than anybody else. She told me about my good attributes and characteristics, but she also challenged me often. And it was because she loved me. And that's the key, isn't it? She knew me so well, all the parts of me, and yet she still loved me. If you want to enjoy the rewards of being loved, you also have to, have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. I was known and loved by my mom. In talking about how well she knew me and even talking about it in past tense feels weird because she's still living physically. She has dementia now, so she uh, pretty much can't even put words together. But even in her dementia, sometimes when I go to visit her, I look in those eyes and I know she knows me. She can't tell me what she wants to say, which is probably good <laughs> for me. But I can see in those eyes for just a brief second, that woman's still there that knows me through and through. Can you think of anyone in your life that knows you like that? That you feel known when you are with them? Take a moment and just picture their face if you have that person in your life. 
Think about how you feel when you're with them. What are some words that come to mind when you're with someone that you feel known by? Some of the words I can think of are seen, understood, settled, comforted, challenged, at ease, safe, and loved. Well, we're in week two of our series by that name, known, looking at some moments with Jesus from the book of Mark. And we're going to take another look, and we're going to take a look at another moment today in Mark chapter five. We started there, Marin started us off in Mark chapter five last week, and we're going to continue on uh, with that story. But this book, although written by Mark, is actually a collection of recollections and memories and accounts from Peter. And this passage uh, is also found, the story we're going to look at today is found in Matthew 9 and in Luke 8, uh, which both have different details to it. But Mark is the most prominent version of the story that we're going to look at today because Mark has something the others do not, an eyewitness, Peter. Peter is not only present at this event at this story, but he plays a role in it. So we're going to look at chapter, uh, chapter five of Mark, verse 21, and I forgot to get your page number for you. So find your Bibles. It'll be a great test for you to have to find this on your own. What is it, Jen? 833. There we go. 833 in the House Bibles, or it's on your app, and if you're at home, it's going to be a different page number anyway. So uh, Mark chapter five, starting in verse 21. So if you'll just read along with me. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd had gathered around him on the shore. Okay, so stop there. So Jesus had just finished uh, healing the demon-possessed man. That's the story that Maren shared last week. Listen, watch her sermon if you were not here last week to see it. But he got in this boat and headed to the other side of the lake. It's about a two-hour trip, and he's back at Capernaum where he had been teaching the day before. So he'd been in Capernaum, then he went over, healed the demon-possessed man, and now he's headed back. And a large crowd had gathered. It says a large crowd gathered on the shore. This crowd is excited to see him, yearning to see him. Unlike the crowd that he just left that was ready to be rid of him and wanted him to leave, they wanted nothing to do with him, this crowd wanted to see him. They didn't give Jesus much room to move. I picture him coming onto shore, and it's kind of like standing in the line to get your seat on Southwest. They're just all crowding around you. Has anyone flown Southwest? My word. It's like a cattle call going into it. So I picture them. They're all around him, and they're excited to see him. He must, they must have loved his teaching because they were ready to see him. And Luke, in the account of Luke, it says, on the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. So they were waiting for him. The crowd was there. Verse 22. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. So Jairus arrives again. Someone is coming to Jesus, just like the story that Maren preached on about the demon-possessed man. They are coming. They are seeking Jesus. Two very different men. You have Jairus, who is very different from the demon-possessed man. He's a leader. 
He's a synagogue chief. This was an elected position. They're chosen by their community. These were local men. They were of high respect, wealthier than the general population. Jairus would have been known and respected by the people around him. So back to back, two stories of two men seeking Jesus, very different. The demon-possessed man is being shunned. No one wants to be around him. Jairus is respected and known by his community. And they both see their need for Jesus. And both fall at his feet. And there are different Greek words used for each of the ways that these two men fall. The demon-possessed man, he falls uh, at his feet in, in association with worship. He is recognizing Jesus' authority. For Jairus, he falls at his feet, and it literally means falling to the ground out of desperation. He recognized that Jesus was his only hope. He said he pleads fervently to, to, to beseech, to call with great fervor. He says, my little daughter is dying. Please come and lay hands on her and heal her so she can live. He is a scared father. And this word healed that he uses means healed and saved. Heal her from sickness and save her from death. Let her live, Jesus. This desperate man is so desperate. You know how we are when our kids are sick. We want to be right by their side. He leaves her. He leaves her and goes miles and miles and miles searching for Jesus to find Jesus. Like the demon-possessed man, he is frantic. They need Jesus and they recognize it. One for himself, the demon-possessed man, and one for his daughter. In Luke, it clarifies, Luke 8.42, it clarifies his only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. So not only is it his daughter, it's his only daughter, and she is 12. And this is significant. The fact that she is 12 years old is significant for many reasons. She's the age to be married. Because of her father's status, she's probably already been promised to another family. And in the first century, marriage and having children, that was a woman's purpose. So for her to die before she fulfills her purpose as a woman, being married and having children, this would have been very, very suspicious. It would have been brought, brought terrible things on Jairus' family and possibly the family of the one that she was supposed to marry. They would want to know who in, the, in these two families has sinned so badly that they would be punished by God like this. So this is significant that she is 12. How significant that she needs to be saved before this happens. In verse 24, it says simply, Jesus went with him. No hesitation. Let's be honest. No one cared about women at this time, particularly girls. They've asked him to go and lay hands on this girl. Religious Jewish men do not do that. But Jesus does. He goes and the crowds just follow him. They just are crowding around him. Luke says they're surrounding him. They're pressing in. They're pushing. I just saw a documentary preview for uh, the documentary coming out about Princess Diana. Do you remember what it was like when she would leave her home or go anywhere? It was swarms and she couldn't even move. That's how I picture Jesus in this crowd. 
So there's another story then. So after verse 24, there's this other story that happens right in the middle of the narrative of this story about Jairus' daughter. This woman in the crowd reaches for Jesus' robe as as everyone's crowding around him. And Tim's going to preach on this next week, this little story, this interlude that takes place in the middle of this story about Jairus. But I want to acknowledge something. Again, it's another person, a woman this time, seeking Jesus, desperate and seeking Jesus for help. Sound familiar? It seems to be a theme. So we skip down to verse 35 to continue this story. So 35, while he was still speaking to her, to the woman that that has touched his robe, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter's dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. Seriously, I'm thinking Jairus, here he is. He has fought through the crowd. He's got Jesus. They're headed to the house and this woman stops him. He's waiting, hopefully patiently, maybe impatiently for Jesus to finish up with this gal. Now he's got him. They're ready to go to the house and the messengers come and they're like, too late. She's dead. Don't bother the teacher now. What do you feel in that moment? And it's interesting that the messengers call Jesus teacher. Remember, he'd been teaching the day before, but it indicates that they don't believe he could heal. They just acknowledge the teaching part of him, not the healing part of him. And then in verse 36, it says, but Jesus overheard them and said, Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. This word overheard could mean that he actually overheard something, or it could mean that he ignored what someone said. And I like to think it was both. I think he heard what they said and he completely ignored them. It was like, Messengers, zip it. Jarus, don't be afraid. Have faith. Don't listen to them. Your faith brought you this far. Your faith got you to leave your sick daughter, fight through the crowd, get to me, grab me. You're taking me back to her. Don't listen to them. Keep your faith. Verse 37, then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw how much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this weeping, commotion and weeping? This child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talita kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around the room. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. So Jesus holds everyone back, including nine of his other disciples. And he just takes Jairus and the three disciples, and they come upon this commotion, this uproar. This was a a socially important thing. The more weeping and wailing that happened when someone passed, the more important you were. So there were lots of commotion at Jairus' house because the daughter had passed. But Jesus barges right in to this commotion. He says, why all this commotion and weeping? This child isn't dead. She's only asleep. I'm sure the rest of the people thought he was crazy. Uh... She's dead. We know she's dead. We wouldn't be here causing this commotion and weeping and wailing if we didn't know she was dead. Why are you saying she's asleep? Again, I think Jesus is thinking about what's going to be good for her in the future, and we'll get back to that in a minute. They all laugh, or as in Greek, it says they ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. 
and he clears the room. He clears the room. I would have loved to have seen that. I would have loved to have seen him clear that room. So there's chaos, 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 and he clears the room. And then it's just Jairus and his wife and the three disciples and Jesus and that little girl. And he goes into that room and he takes her hand. Remember, they asked him to lay hands on her, but he did more than that. He took her hand and he was supposed to avoid women, Jesus was. He wasn't supposed to touch dead bodies. That was unclean. And Jesus takes the hand of this young girl who is gone. And he says, little girl, stand up. Stand up, rise up. This tender command. And she does. And they are, what the verse says, overwhelmed and totally amazed. Of course they are. Each person in that room knew that the little girl was dead and they just watched Jesus take her hand and tenderly bring her back to life. Had she died, it would have been beyond tragic for both of them. It's because of this moment with Jesus that it isn't. And then in verse 33, it says, Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. No one could know this. No one could know that he raised her from the dead. Strict orders, do not tell anyone. They're probably like, what? After what we just saw, what we just witnessed, we can't tell anyone? Nope. But everyone should know it's a miracle. Nope. Why? Because I know her. I know what's best. She is known by me. If everyone out there knows that I raised her from the dead, she is ruined. That's why I told the whole crowd that she was sleeping. If she were dead, she's now unclean. How's that going to affect this family, this man that she's supposed to be married to? She did not want to be known for the rest of her life as the girl that used to be dead. When I was in middle school, there was a kid that pooped his pants on the bus. I know, it's gross. Pooped your pants, that's just a funny thing to say, isn't it? But he pooped his pants on the bus. And for the rest of time, he was known as so-and-so, the kid that pooped his pants on the bus. Jesus did not want this little girl to be known as the girl that used to be dead. And Jesus wasn't lying when, when he said she was asleep. It was a way to refer to those that had passed. He did it to protect her. He was keeping her from pain and heartache and trouble and scorn and ridicule. Everyone wanted to shout it from the rooftops, but Jesus knew what was best for her. And then he said, eat something. That way no one thinks you're a spirit because they believed at that time that if you were dead, you didn't eat. So he said, go eat. That'll show you're a living person. Jesus gives her life, but he does way more. He ensures that this young girl isn't branded forever, that she can move back into her community without this stigma. He gives her life physically and also allows her to live. He, Jesus knew her and he loved her. She was known. Jesus knew her better than she knew herself, better than the disciples knew her, better than her mom and dad knew her. He knew all of them. He knew what they needed. 
He did more than they asked for. He brought her back to life through his power and he gave her life through his tenderness and mercy. She would physically live, yes, but she would also live a full life without a stigma attached to her. Jesus knew her and loved her. Jesus knows you and loves you. Do you believe that? Do you sense that? Do you see that? Have you opened yourself up to that? Because you can't if you don't really know him. Remember the definition of to know is developed a relationship with through spending time with someone. To fully comprehend that you are known and loved by Jesus, you must know and love him. In this story, Jairus is not sitting around waiting. He is active. He is engaged. He is pursuing. First, he leaves his sick daughter behind to seek Jesus, to find him. Are you passionately seeking Jesus? Acknowledging your desperate need for him. He travels and fights through the relentless crowd to find him. What is the crowd in your life that you must fight through to find Jesus? What is your chaos? Is it your sin? Is it patterns in your life? Is it hurt? Is it pain? Is it pride? What crowd do you have to fight through to get to Jesus? He falls on his feet before Jesus, his only hope. Have you surrendered everything to God, to Jesus? Everything you are, everything you have. Are you desperate for him? Are you seeking him daily, looking for the ways that he is present in your life? Is he your only hope? Then he brings Jesus to his daughter. Do you have people in your life bringing Jesus to you? Do you have people in your community that bring Jesus to you? I want you to know the way that I am known by Jesus throughout my life more than anything is through the people of Jesus speaking truth into my life. They bring Jesus to me every day, every week, every month, every year, and I would be lost without them. Do you have people in your life speaking, bringing Jesus to you? If you don't, there's a whole slew of people out there waiting for you to sign up for some group to be part of, to find your community that will bring Jesus to you. And in turn, are you bringing Jesus to anyone else? Because you should be. You should be bringing Jesus to the other people in your life. And let me tell you, there's a whole generation that needs you to bring Jesus to them. They're, they're in Grace Kids Hallway. They're infused. They'll be here tonight for Merge and Fuse tonight for Glide. Those kids are begging for you to invest in their lives. We as parents are begging for other adult people to invest in their lives and bring Jesus to them. Yeah, we need volunteers, but it's so much more than that. You need to invest in the next generation or you're going to see the church die. You need to do it and you will be blessed when you do. Sorry, that was a soapbox moment. Jairus was not afraid. He had faith even when the messengers were trying to distract him. She's dead. She's dead. He keeps pursuing Jesus. He persevered. Are you pushing through the distractions in your life and persevering in your faith of Jesus? And then the girl, she hears Jesus. She listens to Jesus and she obeys. Are you listening to the voice of Jesus? Are you living a life of obedience to that voice? And although I'm sure they wanted to shout it from the rooftops that Jesus healed this girl, the miracle, Jesus says, nope, I know what's best. 
Do you trust that Jesus knows what's best for you? Even when it goes against everything that you want, even when it goes against what you think you need, what you think is best for you, do you trust that Jesus knows what is best? You can't trust that if you're living like this. You can only trust that when you open up and allow him to speak to you and allow yourself to be known and loved by him. This story, this moment with Jesus is full of perseverance and persistence and pursuit. To fully comprehend that you are known and loved by Jesus, you must know and love him. It's easy, really, in some ways to say Jesus knows me and loves me. But to pursue knowing and loving him in the deepest possible way takes effort. It takes work. But it's worth it. And as I look back over my life, I see all the moments where I felt known and seen and loved by him. And how when I was like this, he showed me exactly where I was supposed to be next. When I was like this, I had to fight through it myself. Can you see that in your own life? Can you see where he has met you and shown that you are known and loved? If you'll do me a favor, I would love for you to close your eyes or just bow your head. And I want to read these words from Psalm 139 over you, and I want you to just take these words in. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest seas, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God? They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And I, when I wake up, you are still with me. That is the God I'm talking about. That is the God that you are known and loved by. Isn't he worth knowing and loving and pursuing in deep, in passionate ways. I think he is. In a moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion. 
We're gonna um, take the bread that represents his body broken for us. We're gonna drink from the cup that represents his blood spilled out for us. And we, as we do this, I want you to take a moment to just reflect on this Jesus who knows you. This Jesus who loves you so, so deeply that he sacrificed his own life for you so that that veil could be ripped, that curtain could be torn, and we could have a personal access to the God of the universe so that we could know him in deep and powerful ways. Take a moment as we take this sacrament together to just listen to him this Jesus who pursues you and knows you and loves you. Allow him to meet you in these next moments. And then when you're ready, you can take communion at any time during these next few moments. We're gonna have some music and you can take it when you feel moved and ready to do so. But just spend some time and just listen for the voice of the one that knows you and loves you. Let me pray before we go there. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time. I pray that in these next few moments, as I said before when the message started, would you meet people in the unique way that they need to be met today? We know that you do because you know us and you love us and you know exactly what we need at every moment. Would you meet each person now as we remember the sacrifice that you made on our behalf? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.